Hi, welcome to Broadway Assembly Church Podcast. We are excited for you to be joining us today. If you want to get a notification of the most recent uploads, please subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. I take a little detour away from our uh, study in the book of Revelation, and we're going to uh, we're going to go back to a series we started Sunday morning called Advent, uh, a Christmas connection or a connected Christmas. And uh, so we're going to read from the same passage, but take it one verse further. Instead of stopping at Hebrews 1 and 4, we're going to get on into verse 5. So let's stand for the reading of the Word. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And uh, we're going to talk about another aspect of Uh, Christmas connection, okay? Praise the Lord. Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll start at verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, sundry means various, okay? And in divers manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by who? His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and uh, upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, set down on the right hand of the majesty on high being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Okay, so we made it, I think, on Sunday through that verse. Now let's go into some new uncharted territory here. Verse 5, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he will be, or he shall be to me a son. So uh, that terminology, father and son, brings us to what I'm calling this lesson tonight, a family connection. A family connection. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the book of Hebrews. Thank you, Lord, for the... Uh, passage that we've shared together, uh, may we be able to take this passage, Lord, learn from it, be inspired by it, challenged by it, uh, and drawn closer to you during this Christmas season. In Christ's name we ask these things. All God's children say amen. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Praise the Lord. How many still does Christmas cards? Yeah. History records that the first ever commercial Christmas card was created back in 1843, uh, commissioned by a man named Henry Cole. uh, And it was drawn uh, by an artist named James Horsley. History says they printed a thousand of those original uh, Christmas cards 
And it's believed that right around 30 of those original thousand still are, are in existence today, having survived 179 Christmases. <clears throat> Actually, a while back, one of them sold at, uh, I believe it was Christie's Auction House, for $10,000. So if you've got one of those tucked away somewhere in a family Bible, and you need to pay off your car, <laughs> he said that first card was five inches, uh, three by five, uh, and it consisted of three different panels. The left panel shows a man feeding the hungry. Uh, the right panel pictured a woman clothing the poor. But in the middle of the card, the center uh, panel, uh, the cards, you call it focal point, uh, displayed a family. And actually, it displayed uh, a three-generational family, kids, parents, and grandparents. So at the very center of that first commercial uh, Christmas card ever produced was the family. And I thought that was uh, appropriate because if we were to go back in time, uh, notice on your uh, lesson study guide, we would find that Christmas has always been a family affair. And from the beginning, Christmas was about family and was a celebration of family life. Truth is, the Christmas story, though, predates God's spirit overshadowing the virgin womb of a maiden named Mary. It actually predates and it begins before the child is born and laid in the manger. Christmas, in a sense, starts here as Hebrews 1 and 5 states, where God says, I'm going to be a father to him. And and he shall be to me a son. Now, we're continuing this series that we've entitled A Connected Christmas. Last uh, Sunday, as I mentioned, Sunday morning, we discussed how Christmas is all about connections. Uh, we said it connects past with present, east and west, young and old, mundane with miraculous, heaven with earth. And this series is a little unconventional because it's based in the book of Hebrews rather than in the Gospels where we typically go for the nativity story. So, so I'd like us to recall a bit of background on this uh, book of Hebrews because, uh, and this is real deep, so don't miss it, Hebrews was written to Hebrews. Do you get that? It was penned to Jewish believers those that had embraced Christ as the Messiah. So, so this series could easily be called Christmas with the Hebrews because actually the Hebrews were the beneficiaries of this book who, uh, you know, they were trying to break free from traditions that had bound them for decades because by this time, Judaism had become an old, proud, unbending religion that exalted Moses and the law and the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices and the angels. Yet the Jews who had believed in the gospel needed to know that Christ, their Redeemer, 
had satisfied, but not only satisfied, he actually superseded all the institutions of Judaism. Christ was, it's said over and over in the book of Hebrews, a better high priest, a better sacrifice. We have a better covenant. So he was superior to Moses, superior to the temple, superior to the law, superior to even the angels. Right? Now in Judaism, the angels of God, to the Jews, they were highly esteemed. Since they dwelt in God's presence in heaven, they were envied by men on earth. The Jews actually envied angels they, because they knew they had this continual access to God's glory. And in addition, the angels were heroes, active in God's dealings with man. Uh, in Acts chapter 7, the early church deacon, Stephen, said that the delivery of the law of Moses came through the angels. So some Jews during this time actually practically worshipped the angels. But here in Hebrews 1, we learn that angels are and always have been mere servants of God. Verse 7 calls them ministers. Again in verse 14, they're actually servants to us. It says they are ministering spirits to the heirs of salvation. Who are the heirs of salvation? You and I. So the writer of Hebrews contrasts the difference between Christ and the angels. He says Christ is God's only begotten Son, while the angels are God's hired hands. Yes, the angels are in heaven, but the writer of Hebrews mentions how Christ sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father, meaning he's superior. Then Hebrews chapter 1 takes us back in time before the first Christmas. The author quotes what we read tonight is actually a quotation from Psalm chapter 2, which is a prediction or prophecy. That psalm is actually a prophetic psalm, messianic psalm. A prediction of God's coming king, one who will reign from Israel, the psalmist says. All the nations are his possession. The king, uh, this king's rule will extend to the ends of the earth, Psalm 2 says. He'll govern with a rod of iron. Everyone will obey him. Then God says to this future king, you are my son, today I have begotten thee. Now the psalmist says that this coming king will be God's own son. In the same verse now in Hebrews 1 and 5, the writer of Hebrews is quoting God again. Okay, And this time, he, he reaches back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 14, where here God is speaking to a man after his own heart who we know as David, King David. And he promises King David an heir who will reign for all eternity. Okay? And again, the Messiah is on the radar. 
Here, and God says of him, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. God spoke to Jesus not just as a king and ruler, but as a member of his family. So we shouldn't underestimate the lofty status Christ is given when God calls him son. To the Jews now, I, I think it's interesting. To these Hebrews that the book of Hebrews is written to, the concept of sonship is charged with heavy theological implications. Because here's how the Jewish mind works. If you're the son of a bumblebee, that makes you what? A bumblebee. Now, how hard was that? If you're the son of a cow, you're a cow. If you're the son of a man, makes you a man. But if you're the son of God, then you are God, meaning his very essence. That's what the word begotten means, of the very essence. And how many know God is divine? This is why John 3.16 calls Jesus God's only begotten Son. So when the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 2 and reaches back and quotes 2 Samuel uh, 7, he ascribes this passage or these passages to Christ and he's making this declaration. Jesus is not no mere servant of God. He is far more than a servant, far more than an angel, far more than a messenger. Jesus is God in the flesh. This is also how God speaks of himself in Genesis 1.26. When God creates the first man, we're told God says, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness is what he was saying. And so God uses plural pronouns to describe himself in speaking of us and our. And when God speaks of himself, he does so using a plurality. And this is what God does throughout all scripture. God is one God. Don't get me wrong. But he exists in three distinct persons. This is the triune nature of God or what we have called the Trinity. Once a little girl was asked in Sunday school if she knew the term of the nature of God, and the teacher was obviously looking for the word Trinity. Instead, the little girl answered, the triplets. And I thought, well, she was close, right? She was right about God's threeness, but she had forgotten about God's oneness. And God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yet all three are equally God, unique and distinct. And here's the point. Notice on your study guide. God defines His very nature in terms of a family. One member of the Godhead assumes the role of Father. Another, the role of the Son. And it is, is it any wonder that when God created the first man, He put him in a family. Adam was created, then Eve, 
And they were told to be fruitful and to multiply. The first institution, notice on your study guide, and community structure that God established on earth was not a government, a school, a city hall, a temple, or even a church. It was a family. This is why family life, Broadway, is so important. It's sacred. And this is why the biblical definition for family is worth fighting for in this culture, right? Because the audacity of our modern culture and its willingness to ignore 6,000 years of history and our collective wisdom, as well as ignoring the Scripture, and redefine marriage and redefine family life, that is appalling and it's dreadful nonsense. Modern same-gender relationships and biblical families are not created equal. Sorry, not in the book. God's design is for a one man and one woman in a lifelong marital commitment to raise a family, sons and daughters, and some people may achieve a measure of worldly success through inferior arrangements, but we are foolish to think that an exception should make the rule. Just because a, just because a blind contestant can win a skeet shooting competition doesn't mean everybody should close their eyes before they pull the trigger. Realize biblical marriage is the preference of the all-wise, all-loving Creator. And how many know He's a God who knows better than we? Amen. God considers it the arrangement that provides kids the best chance of growing up in a healthy and whole. I mean, the nuclear family, notice on your study guide, should be favored over all other alternatives. Not because you said so, not because even I said so, but because God said so. Right? And there's nothing unfair about a society recognizing the best arrangement for a family and then promoting and protecting that arrangement for the greater good of its citizens. In fact, it's compassionate. And here's the inescapable truth. Notice on your study guide. When it came time for the holy, sinless, almighty, all-knowing God to join the human race, guess where he chose to be born? Hmm? He was birthed into a family of a man and a woman united together in the bonds of marriage. Think of it this way. God left his heavenly confines for a barren land, a, a, a land that was actually scarred by sin, a land filled with hate and anger, lust and death and selfishness. When Jesus came to this earth, his new environment was nothing like the land that he had left. Heaven has as much in common with earth as Hawaii does with Antarctica. This is why Jesus was born into the one earthly environment most like heaven, just to be the family. Jesus was the son in heaven, notice on your study guide, long before he was the son on earth. And at Christmas, we talk about Jesus being born in a barn in Bethlehem. But the best answer to that question of where was Jesus born is that he was born into a family. God chose a family, Joseph and his wife Mary, to raise his son in their home. It reminds me of the three-year-old named Blake. His mom and dad had been careful to teach him 
uh, just how much Jesus loved him. And one day, Dad asked Blake, he said, Blake, where does Jesus live? And Dad expected this son to answer, in heaven or in my heart. Or It was Christmas time, so he expected maybe he's going to say even Bethlehem. But after thinking a while, little Blake said, Dad, Jesus lives in our basement. Because that made sense to Blake because that's where they stored their Christmas decorations. The nativity scene and the plastic baby Jesus was always put away in the basement. And I got to thinking, though, what a blessing it would be if that could be said, though, of every family. Jesus does live in our home. Jesus does live, whether it's in the basement, in the living room, in the kitchen, right? Jesus should be living in our homes. He lives in the very place where kids and grandkids hang out and where the family has fun time and where the meals are shared together and where everyone is free to just goof off and be themselves. Right? I know you don't know anything about that. Goofing off. See, imagine if Jesus lived in the heart of every home in America. What a difference it would make. Right? When Jesus came to earth, he knew he would be born in Bethlehem, later take refuge in the land of Egypt, ultimately be raised in a place called Nazareth, and one day visit Jerusalem's temple and travel the villages and the countrysides surrounding the Sea of Galilee. But listen, his immediate destination was not those places. It was a family. And Joseph wasn't, hey, and this wasn't a rich family either. It wasn't a prestigious family. In fact, Joseph and Mary's family, they were poor, humble, nondescript. Remember when Christ was dedicated to the temple, Joseph couldn't even afford the customary sacrifice, which was a lamb. He had to opt out for what was known as the poor man's exemption Two turtle doves. That means he was poor. It had probably been a while since Mary and Joseph had a couple quarters to rub together. Yet this family had some ingredients, though, that money couldn't buy. They had a loving family, a loving family, that worship, a worshiping family, an obedient family, a believing family. And that's a little bit of heaven on earth, right? It's what the family should be. And that's why God chose their family, I think, to be the sanctuary for his son. And, and that's why I like the fact that Christmas should be about family. It, it was in a family, a man and a woman, not yet intimate, but already betrothed. That means they were legally committed. And it was in that setting that the Holy Spirit worked the miracle of conception. And when the shepherds received the news from the angel uh, of, the, uh, of the Messiah's arrival, they come running to check it out for themselves. How many know they didn't find a modern hospital or even the accessories of a royal court or even an ICU unit of, filled with medical technology? Not a, not a military patrol standing guard over the baby. No, all they found was a family. 
even two years later when the wise men, it seems, presented their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It was still a family. Because, notice on your study guide, the institution of the nuclear family is forever dignified and glorified. If for no other reason than Jesus was born into a family. That means if we have a family, and we all do to some extent, we should pay it special attention at Christmas. Even if your family has been through some tough and rough times lately, I want to tell somebody, don't give up on your family. Hello. Don't neglect or ignore your family, even if it's a dysfunctional family. Hello. When Jesus entered the world, he came to be part of a family, and I believe Christ still gifts his presence to families. He wants to work a miracle in your family. Remember, Jesus doesn't just love families in general. Jesus loves your family specifically. And often when we think of the family of Joseph and Mary, we assume they were perfect. They were the Waltons or the Cleavers of the first century Nazareth. Because God wouldn't send his sinless son into a flawed family, would he? He must have picked a choice couple with a harmonious marriage. Uh, you know, Joseph and Mary sharing this perfect, peaceful, blissful life. No way did they have any kinds of hang-ups or issues or baggage to carry. How many know we can be naive in our assumptions? At the time of Jesus' birth, Mary is just a young teen. Joseph has no experience in these matters. I mean, he's just a rough, tough construction guy. Hello? I believe that their hearts were full of apprehension, worry, doubt. If you think Jesus was born into a family that had it all together, let me suggest you better think again. Because these were young, most likely teens, that were recalling from the events that had caught them off guard, changing their lives, putting them in a position that was totally beyond their control. They were a family, but by anyone's standards, they were just barely a family. Joseph and Mary had the odds stacked against them. If they had come to me for relationship counseling, I might have cautioned them to take a step back and go slow. If they had asked their parents and the townsfolks what to do, they would have split up for good. Hello? Understand the Christmas miracle begins with a troubled relationship. A husband and his betrothed wife are struggling to even stay together. Joseph was contemplating an exit strategy. Have Mary stoned or send her away to a nearby city and let her start over? Regardless of how much you've disliked your spouse, I bet you never considered having them stoned. Firing squad, maybe. Gas chamber, maybe, but not stolen. 
Just kidding. For a long time, Joseph particularly had to work through some serious trust issues. <laughs> I mean, come on. Did he really buy the angel's explanation? He was trapped between believing the impossible or accepting Mary's infidelity. And that's just the start of a long list of challenges. Here was a relationship where at first the wife was listening to God while her husband really wasn't. And I use wife and husband because they were betrothed and in the Hebrew culture they were already committed to each other. This is a marriage that starts out with an unexpected pregnancy and all the problems that that can cause. Joseph and Mary are all stressed out and when they're forced to... Here comes a, a grueling trip in the midst of it all that the law says they have to take. And obviously, Joseph had lousy health insurance. If his wife gives birth in a barn, that's pretty bad health insurance. He thought yours was bad. Imagine, too, how tight their budget must have been when Mary had to start purchasing Swaddling clothes. And then when they were forced to make an exodus into Egypt, that relocation only added to the upheaval in their lives. See, I think it's true. Jesus' family had a pretty rough start. I think if you think it over, you'll agree. Jesus was born to a family facing many of the struggles that today's families face. Notice that on your study guide. Mary and Joseph didn't have a perfect marriage, yet Jesus, Hebrews says, the one greater than the angels, still graced their family with his presence. That first Christmas, the Son of God chose to join a very, very imperfect family. That's why there's hope for all families at Christmas. Hello. Amen, Pastor. Your family might be struggling. In the center of your house, there might be strife. There might be anger. There might be worry. There might be resentment or friction. Perhaps your family is on the ropes. It's down for the count. Maybe there's a lack of trust between its members. Or maybe you are hearing from God and nobody else is. Or maybe an unexpected pregnancy or some other surprising circumstance has heated up the pressure cooker you're living in and now you're fumbling for direction. Maybe it's a trip home you know you got to make to visit or maybe you got to go visit your in-laws. Maybe that's got you stressed out. Maybe it's a lack of health insurance. Or maybe it's you realize diapers cost far more than swaddling clothes. And why, oh why, does your husband want to chase his dream and move your family to Egypt? Because you're just now getting to know a few of your neighbors in Bethlehem. See, this is what happened to Mary and Joseph. 
If there's friction in your family this season between husband, wife, parent, child, whatever you do, don't give up. Say it with me. Don't give up. Even if your family is coming apart faster than gift wrapping on Christmas Day, there's still good tidings of great joy because Christ wants to be part of your family and mine. The Holy Spirit wants to overshadow you and yours, work a miracle in your midst. Oh, hallelujah. He wants to spread goodwill toward men, bring peace on earth, and have it commence in your family. Because Christ brings new life to dying hopes, fresh breath to stale relationships. And when you come to the manger and you bow before a newborn king, Christ sweeps away the anger. He can sweep away the pride, the prejudice, the selfishness. Jesus didn't just forgive us, but in doing so, he enables us to forgive others. His love for us causes us to love the person that we formerly thought were, was unlovable. Christmas is about, is about the harmony and happiness he brings with him when he's invited to join a family. In our text, the writer of Hebrews proves a vital point to which he says the angels did. To which of the angels did God ever say, I'll be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. It's God who, I, who defines himself in family terms as father and son, proving forever that Christmas is about family. So if the gifts were all taken away, the tree, the decorations, the parties, the eggnog, I don't like that anyway. Christmas will still be Christmas if our family relationships or where they need to be. Because Christmas is about Jesus being welcomed into our family. Yet we often make it about so many other things, don't we? Right? We make it about supply chain worries, fighting the mob on Black Friday. Who can overindulge the kids? The most, we stress out finding the right this or the right that. Church, let's remember what really matters most at Christmas. And that is prioritizing the presence of Christ in your family. Let me say this. If there's a bridge that's been burned and needs to be rebuilt... Rebuild it. If there's a fence that needs mending, mend it. Hmm. It's awful quiet in here. If there's a hatchet that needs burying, bury it. If there's a statement that needs to be made, get busy, make it with grace and humility. When your family gathers this Christmas, remember that Jesus is looking for an open door where he can come into your family and begin a work of grace and redemption. 
The first Christmas was about Jesus joining a family, and during every Christmas since, he looks for families who will open up their hearts and their homes and invite him in. Why not be the person or persons who opens their family's house or their door? Be the one who believes that Jesus loves your family and will work a healing that your family needs in spite of all the baggage. Right? Praise God. Boy, I think I, I've, I probably went in overtime. I, I don't have my watch on me. So we better, we better land this thing. But remember this week, your family is just a prayer away from Christ working a Christmas miracle in the people you love. Hmm? Because notice on your study guide, I think this is the last statement, Christmas proves that God's heart beats for every family, especially yours. Amen. Praise God. Sis Jones, you can come. I'm closing. Heavenly Father, we ask you today, help us to have the courage, the strength, to do whatever you require of us so that you be welcomed into our families into our homes, into our hearts. Lord, we're particularly concerned about those who find themselves maybe in dysfunctional and broken families, which all of us have aspects of that in our relationships. And God, many of us have tried within ourselves a thousand times to fix it. But here tonight, we ask for divine help because we realize that only through Christ can healing and help not only be a possibility, but can be a reality. So Lord, we ask that Christ reign supreme in our homes, our families, no matter what it takes this Christmas. God, help us to lay down the sins that create barriers and embrace the grace of God that builds bridges. God, that's what we need. Thank you that Jesus came and built a bridge. Now we can be part of the family of God. And thank you that Scripture reminds us of how blessed it is when our transgressions are forgiven and our sins are covered. Or if there's one here tonight who needs that sin covered, may they ask for that covering of your precious blood here tonight before they exit this worship center. Thank you for these things. In Christ's name we all say... Amen. God bless you. These altars are open. If you'd like to spend a few moments in prayer before you leave, please do so. Invite God into your family this Christmas. Wouldn't that be good? Invite God into your family this Christmas.
Peace you bring. There is He.